Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello. <laughs> Osha here. If you look at the news and it feels like every day, every hour, as you scroll through your phone, you think, holy shit, the world is ending. You might not be imagining it. But what if I told you that with every ending comes a new beginning that we can also imagine into reality? And that new beginning might just be something more wonderful than you could possibly comprehend. Stan Grant has been observing and analysing the way that the world works for over 30 years. His new book and his new work has profound meaning for our nation right now at this time. We'll get to Stan in just a minute. Um, It is summertime. I hope you're having a nice break. We're having a break. Me and Andy and Rach and Toe Ida and Bree, we're all on a beach towel. No, we're not. We're all with our families. Um, but we are having a break. So this is a best of episode. This show has, this, this interview has happened before, but it's important to have another listen because it's a really important time to listen to Stan. We might need to take an ad break here. If we do, be helping us keep the lights on. If we don't, let's kick off with Stan Grant. I really don't like certainty. I don't trust it. I don't like where it leads. I don't like how it can so easily lead to fascism. And I don't like identity for that same reason. You know, I don't like identity. I don't like the word. I don't like what it represents. I don't like the age that it has created. I don't like the certainties associated with identity. I don't like the battles of identity because I think we are far more complex and contradictory and far less certain than our identities allow. That is such a scourge of our age, this identity that binds us and does not allow us to see ourselves in each other or look beyond our differences or disagreements. You know, we don't have to reach a consensus. We don't have to agree, but we surely have to recognise the contradictions that sit within us and extend those same contradictions to others. That is journalist, author, international affairs analyst, 
professor of global affairs and Wiradjuri man, Stan Grant. And this is episode 381 of Better Than Yesterday. G'day. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a podcast that is here to help you make today better than yesterday. Since 2013, we've been having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, and every one of those conversations will make your day better than yesterday. That is a guarantee. So many episodes to listen to, and I'm really grateful for all your support. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. And I'm probably, at this point in time, um, hanging out with some relatives um, because I recorded this weeks ago so we could all have a holiday. If you need me, send us your email at gmail.com is where you can find me. I'm also on Instagram. And let's talk about my guest because he's amazing. I love him. I love everything he does. Stan Grant, he's a journalist. He's an international affairs analyst. He's an author. He's a professor. And he's a proud Wiradjuri man who lives in Sydney, Australia. Stan's most recent book, With the Falling of the Dusk, is out now. And it's no hyperbole to say that of the hundreds of interviews that I've done on this show, this is easily one of my all-time favorites. And I'm thrilled that I get a chance to have you listen to it again. I'm grateful to listen to it again. I can't wait for you to hear it. It's possibly one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. And I'm no, I'm no exaggerating. That's no exaggeration. Enjoy this hour and a bit with Stan Grant. It's great to see you, buddy. Yeah, you too. How you been, mate? Got nice guitars behind you there too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this one's this one just broke actually. The nut blew up on that one <laughs> the other day. So oh, I got, really? I got to take it to the man, and that's the. Is that is that a bass, right? Yeah, that's I'm a bass guy. That's the. Is it a Fender? Is the Fender Precision or Fender Jazz? It's, uh, you know, I'm the, um, I'm the bloke who's nearly fifty. You know, buying the Corvette he had on his bedroom wall when he. Oh, was, love it! <laughs> That's gorgeous. It's, uh, my wife actually got it for me for Christmas last year. It's oh, a, fantastic! It's a '95 reissue of the '73 Jazz Bass, which is like that's the. Oh, I love it! It's my guitar, man. You know, it's the. Yeah, but that's okay. We all have a. I like playing bass. It's good. Yeah, man, it's my yeah. thing. Now that was because oh, I wasn't a good enough guitar player, so I became a bass player. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, a lot of people sort of make the mistake of thinking, don't they, that playing a bass is like just playing a guitar, and it's not. It's an entirely different, yeah, it's entirely, entirely different. different approach. That feel you've got to have, and that wonderful, yeah, sort of rhythmic, melodic quality. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people like McCartney, who's just such a fluid melodic bassist. That mm. I, I love that sort of stuff, and those yeah. wonderful Motown players. Oh and, man! Um, wow, I'm all about those guys. Yeah, just um, just just knocks you out. You know. In yeah. fact, funnily enough, I was listening. Just had um, one of those title streaming service on this morning, and it's just throwing up random songs. And up came Elvis Costello. It was I think it was uh, Accidents Will Happen, and I started listening to the bass, and I thought. That's what's really making that song swing because mm. it was a very Motown, very yeah. soulful baseline. I'm in a hole of Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards at the moment. Oh, wow. You know, there was so much more than just chic 
They were oh. Sister Sledge. They were David oh, Bowie. They yeah. were Bowie. My God, like you listen to the stuff that, like the Sister Sledge stuff, you just listen to it and you're like, what the, how, what, how do they even do this? <laughs> like it's just so. Just phenomenal. Just next level. I love those guys. I yeah. mean, just un- unbeatable. I dream of the phone call. Like what was it when David Bowie picked up the phone and called Nile Rogers? You know, hello, mate, it's David. <laughs> you know. And, and that Soul Train footage of, of him, like, it's just, anyway, we could go on. Stan, I'm so grateful we could see each other. Last time you came on the show, you, you were in my apartment. I'm grateful that we could catch up this way. Thank you for this book, With the Falling of the Dusk, is the new book, Across the Weekend. Balancing reading your new book at the same time as trying to enjoy rock pools with our toddler, you know, <laughs> and try to be like, this is beautiful, this beautiful moment on holiday with my family and then reading your book going, parking, parking. <laughs> was, uh, that's just surreal, you know, yeah. really. But that's what I life mean, is, Stan. That's what life is. You can't ignore that it's both. You've got to hold both in your hands, don't you? Someone asked me the other day, where's the hope in the book? And I'm, I'm not a fan of hope. I think hope becomes something that put you know we can put off change because hope will take care of it or the politics of hope all that stuff that you know the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice well it doesn't if you're an aboriginal person locked up and dying young in this country or if you're an african american who's still suffering the worst of covid and dying under the boot of police and you know it doesn't bend to justice but what does redeem us are those beautiful moments of the human soul. And while I don't get in the book into the sort of politics of hope and this idea that things will just get better, this Western idea of endless progress, which I think is just a a mirage, I do see and I do write about those beautiful moments where the human soul can just rise above tyranny. There was this great moment when I was um, in Afghanistan, and I mentioned it in the book, and, you know, during the, the Taliban control and ta- Taliban rule, they shut down all the music stores because they hate the mu- music was outlawed. The only music that was allowed was the unadorned human voice. And a lot of musicians were murdered. And after the Taliban were toppled, the music stores opened up again. And I walked into one one day in Kabul and uh, my cameraman was with me. He was an Iranian guy, so he could speak as Farsi and, and Pashto are very similar languages. And I saw on the on, on the wall a battered old guitar with rusted strings and I, I asked to get it down. I sort of managed to get it into something sort of reasonably tuneful. And, and I asked where it came from and he said it was left behind by a Soviet soldier in the invasion of Afghanistan in 1980. And in my hands, Osha, was the entire story from the invasion of the Soviet empire, which ultimately led to the collapse of the Soviet Union the rise of the Taliban, Bin Laden and and the Mujahideen who went there to fight the Soviets backed by American money that would then come back to bite the US. And it was all in my hands in this guitar. And I started playing Stairway to Heaven as everybody does in a guitar shop. And, And while I was playing it, this guy who I can't speak to, doesn't speak my language, different cultures, different religions, different countries, he gets down a traditional Afghan instrument called a rabab. And he starts picking out the melody of this song that he has never heard. And two men from different countries who don't speak to each other started speaking to each other through music. And it was a beautiful moment 
of the glory of the human soul to defy tyranny. Lovely. And I, that's where that's where hope lives. It lives in the rock pool with your son and it lives in moments like that. Far out, man. Once again, Stan, I'm just I'm just swimming in the poetic majesty of the way you speak. I remember when you came to my house, I was holding onto the table with both hands, trying to keep track of like not to get lost, not to get lost in your dreamy eyes and the way you can tell a story. But you're right, man. That's a what an incredible experience yeah. you, you've had. The, yeah. the the book, A Chronicle of the World in Crisis, is the is a subtitle, and it did kind of make me think, though, you know, as far back as we could write. And even before that, you know, the, the spoken word isn't the fact, the idea, sorry, the story that we are in crisis and we have to act now. Has that not mm. always been the lever that power has used since time immemorial? Most definitely. Isn't crisis just, crisis is a part of the human existence? Always. And, and the ability to manage over crisis, I suppose, is what we're always striving for. Crisis is what got our ancestors moving. Crisis, you know, leaving behind drought or flood or disaster or war. What put my ancestors on a on a raft to travel to this country a hundred thousand years ago to put me here today? The movement of people across the world is driven by a sense of crisis. And then when we meet each other, we meet each other with suspicion, often hatred or violence. And then out of that comes something new. And then that builds its own equilibrium and its own future. And I think when we get to the to the advent of the West, which is really what I'm trying to grapple with in this book, is that the Western idea that comes out of the Enlightenment is that we can control all of that. We can control crisis. We can subdue nature. That we can bend time to our will. We can conquer history. The individual can live free of the chains of faith or family or government or nation or whatever it may be. A wonderful idea that also <laughs> leads to alienation, destruction of the planet, destruction of other cultures, and now into this moment of existential crisis where so many of those things are coming back to bite the West and the rise of China as an authoritarian country with its own deep memories of Western humiliation is challenging the supremacy of the West and the West is collapsing from within because of its own legacy of racism and sexism and deep-seated inequality, um, all of those things coming to the fore. So you're absolutely right, Osha. We are driven by a sense of crisis. It's what we do with that, how we manage that, how we try to subvert that, what utopian dreams we think that will deliver us from the darkness of that crisis. And where does it lead to? Inevitably, it leads to another crisis. When I think about how we manage crisis and how our leaders manage crisis, it's the standard play is either this is happening or they manufacture something or they pretend mm -hmm. something is happening and then go, but I'm the one that can help you out and then this crisis will no yep. longer be here. I think getting used to the idea that you know, we like to pretend that death doesn't exist. 
that you're going to die, yes. I'm going to die. As Wayne Coyne from The <laughs> Flaming Lips said, everyone you know someday will die. Yeah. And av- averting death or pretending death doesn't exist is a big part of a lot of people don't manage that until they get to their kind of 60s or 70s and they suddenly realize, fuck, it's all going to end. Just accepting the idea that crisis, as you mentioned, is a part of what has got us to this point, whether it be we need to find a better way to do this or yeah. we're going to die unless we figure this out. And seeing through the subterfuge that leaders can stop crisis, they can't. It's just going to keep happening. It's what happens when humans interact. It's the flashpoints that happen between us that create opportunities that we otherwise didn't experience. And just, I think, you know, just accepting that crisis is a part of life might be a step forward. Yeah, you know, and as you say, that death is a part of life. I've been very influenced by, I'm not entirely a paid-up and fully subscribed member of, but very influenced by the existentialists, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, you know, these, I think those fundamental questions that they asked about the absurdity of life, particularly Camus, the absurdity of life, and the absurdity becomes real, and the absurdity that we can withstand or withhold death. I mean, even during COVID, I've grappled with this. I mean, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of dying? Because we're going to die. Are we afraid of making other people ill and then they may die? Well, that's a virtuous thing. And certainly that's been on my mind and and I'm prepared to acquiesce to restrictive measures that will ensure the safety and health of others. That's a reasonable and civilised thing to do. But death is part of who we are. And the idea that you can hold that at bay stops us living our lives as well. It's only when we embrace the reality of that death that we can live our lives and make ethical choices free of that fear. And yet we're living in a time where, and I went to a conference a couple of years ago and I sat in a room, this bananas situation I found myself in, I was in a room about 20 people with Peter Diamandis who started the X Prize. And this guy's a jillionaire, all right? Mm. 100% with no sense of any doubt in his eyes, he looked at us and said, I'm going to live to 700. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> uh, he was just uh, investing that much money in deferring death. But we live in a time when people who have access to that kind of wealth, these kind of hypermobile humans that have access to wealth and capital and power, absolutely unimaginable at the times yeah. of the philosophers you're speaking of, who literally do not have any reason to doubt that they won't live to 700. And yeah. what kind of decisions get made by people who are deferring death? I I couldn't bear it. I'm like, I sat in that room going, fuck no, man, I'll take, I'll get mid-80s and I'll be happy. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what, Osher, it's that death that gives our life meaning. It's the sense that this is finite. The joy that we take in every day in, in knowing that the time with our children is precious, that every meal we take, the love we have for each other, the you know, it's what gives us that perspective and context on our lives. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not forever virtuous. I make mistakes. I'm short-tempered. I get angry in the car. I should have given more time to the kids when I had it. All of those things and those regrets you live with. But but I'm a good person and I, and I love the people that are close to me and I try to do good things for people in the world because I know it's precious. And that's what comes from knowing that we are not here forever. The great writers and the great religions, the faiths of our world that try to make sense of the finite nature of human existence is what gives us meaning. If meaning is just longevity, if meaning is just wealth and your ability to subdue nature, then that's going to lead to your destruction ultimately. 
no one's more powerful than physics. And we're finding that yes. out. We are finding that out. And no matter how many times people or corporations or governments try to pretend that, and like, I understand, you invent a big enough bulldozer, you can flatten a mountain. And it's been done. Yeah. I've seen it done in Utah. Yeah. They were, they, they go, oh, there used to be a mountain there. And they just did it because they could. You know, there's no reason to believe that at that point in time. It's like, I, I can control every aspect of the natural world. Well, there's a, a couple of squillion square tons of atmosphere that is going to yep. come knocking and there's nothing exactly. you can do about it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and also, you know, to come back to that idea too of death, if you surrender to the inevitability of that and you don't live bound by the fear of that, then you have the ability to speak back to power. You know, look at the wonderful people, the people that I've been most influenced by. Martin Luther King Jr., he said, you know, longevity is a good thing. I hope to live a long life, but tonight I'm standing here and I'm not fearing any man because I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the other side and I know we will get there. We will get to the promised land. D Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against Hitler and the Nazis and said, no, I will not accept this and paid for it with his own life. People who are prepared to surrender their lives and speak back to power because they don't fear death. If you fear death, and I think COVID has given us a bit of a taste of this, then you will acquiesce. You will surrender to everything and anything. And yes, in the case of COVID and the decisions that we've made have been virtuous decisions, but they could equally be tyrannical decisions. And when you acquiesce, when you surrender to that, you will ultimately surrender to anything. The ability to say no, to speak back to power, ultimately comes back to the idea that you do not fear and you do not fear death. It's a journey that people can only get to themselves. We can talk about it. Yeah. I had to go through a very, very dark night of the soul. Yeah, likewise, man. Yeah, we, likewise. We've spoken about this, that I had, it's yes. terrifying. It's 100% terrifying to accept and to be there and to pass into that. Yeah, it was awful. But once I got through to the other side and was in acceptance that there were things not in my control that would dictate my life. And I had seen so much death, Osher, that oh it became God. so normal to me. You know, I'd seen bits of human flesh scattered around the ground, blood gurgling so hot under my feet that it was like melting tar. You know, um, I've seen dogs chewing on human flesh. I've seen mounds of babies and children's bodies piled up and set alight because there's nowhere to bury them. It became so normal that I became fixated on death and my own death and and with a death wish for a period. And But, you know, I, like you, I look back at that and there was a period in my life where I was really at that crisis point and I needed help and, you know, I, I went and sought help and I, with great encouragement and love from people close to me. And I look back at that now and it was a terrible time, but it, it's a precious time to me now because at that point in my life, all I had to do was look at myself and, and get better. And that nothing else mattered at that point. And it's a precious thing to come out the other side as you have, you know, it's, it's precious and it's part of that journey, you know, that we have to go into the abyss, don't we, to come out the other side. I can't even imagine the things that you've seen, you know, I, I, you know, you're, you're one of the two people I've spoken to that have done a very similar job and the other people I spoke with was, was Michael Ware. Oh, Mick's a good friend of mine, yeah. And when you look yeah. at Michael in the eyes, it's like looking in one of, like Wolfie's got this little um, 
like a little kaleidoscope, I can see the yeah. refraction still shining back out of his eyes of the things yeah. he's seen. Yeah. I don't know if I could live like that. I look at you <laughs> and I see that you have your eyes are, are clear, Stan, even mm. though we're on a Zoom, but I remember when yeah. you were in my home, your eyes are clear. I can only imagine the kind of work you had to do to be free of the echoes of the things you've seen. Uh, and it doesn't leave you because the you know the dreams come back, the nightmares come back. I'm, I'm hypervigilant. A loud noise will you know send a jolt through me, a shiver through me. Um, there are things I have to do to take care of myself every day: exercise, regularity. I, don't, I still don't sleep well. There's all of those things. But I'll tell you, Osha, fundamentally, and I think this was always the strongest thing. I know who I am and where I'm from. I'm not saying that Michael doesn't, but I think it's harder for people who don't have the depth of connection and antiquity and culture that I have, fortunately. Tens of thousands of years of that. And I remember when I was going through my worst, and I, um, I love the time of night. I love that time during winter when the, the light softens and it's 4.30 to 5 o'clock and the air feels cooler and the birds are starting to sort of nestle in the trees and it's just that beautiful coming of the dusk, really. And I've been to see a psychiatrist at that point that day and I'd come back and I was, um, I walked outside and I just looked at the trees and I looked at the light and I just felt at peace. I knew that this country would open up for me. This country is my home. And I, I think that is the thing that rests so heavily on my soul. That's the thing that sort of anchors me and gives me that sense of peace. And without that, I really don't know. I really don't know if I'd be here. Oh, well, I'm grateful that you found that moment mate. And I know that other people can access that through just being mindful of the yeah. a butterfly that can see infrared yeah. and land upon a flower and feed itself and then go and pollinate an apple that I will then eat. Like yeah. just being in that incredible brilliance and that I'm a part of that system for me, Stan, that's part, oh, I'm a part of something way bigger. When I eat food, I eat atmospheric carbon you know, that yeah. a, a pollinating animal had a chance, you know, like I'm a yeah. part of something bigger. Like I do not have the connection to land and culture and country that you have. I'm an immigrant to this country, but I can access what you're talking about. Well, this country's yours too. When you come to it with the right heart, it's yours. As, <laughs> as Jung said, you know, land assimilates its conqueror. Land assimilates its conqueror. You just, you can't conquer the place. It's yours when you open your heart to it. I was just transfixed by by just thinking about this stuff because it, it is a place we need to stand when we do think about what it is you're writing about and what we're contemplating here. The the book draws heavily on the German philosopher Hegel. Yeah. The the title of, is from a larger quote of the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only when with the falling of the dusk, the idea that only once the shit has happened, we can look back and go, yeah. oh, right, okay, maybe maybe when they annex the Sudetenland, maybe we should have kind of, <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe when he said, I promise I won't take anything more than Poland, right? You know, maybe yeah. we can't wait until after the sea levels have risen and the temperature has risen too much to grow food. We cannot wait until that point to look back no. and go, we really should have done this. The idea that our biggest learnings happen in hindsight has been true for a lot of human history, but we, we really don't have that luxury now, Stan. And I think, I think, Osha, this is what Hegel was saying to us. I mean, 
you know, Hegel's a fascinating thinker because he's he's so dense and yet he's also so incredibly poetic. He probably gives birth to the modern world more than any other philosopher post a French Revolution. The idea of the nation state, he, you know, he could give birth equally to Stalinist Russia as he could to Nazi Germany, as he could to liberal democracy. They've all drawn from him. He was he believed in this endless quest for freedom. He believed in in this sort of contradiction that lies at the heart of our society that powers change, that drives us through these these processes of change. People probably mistook him and see him as the philosopher who most sort of captures that spirit of the end of history. And it's true that he did believe that we reach a point of absolute spirit where the great ethical questions are answered and we find ourselves recognised in each other in an ethical state. But he believed that it was that contradiction, that that vigilance, that ability to question ourselves constantly. As you say, to not wait until it is too late, but the owl of Minerva is spreading its wings at the falling of every dusk, of each night. Where are we? What do we have to change? And he said, if you do not heed that, then it will lead to disaster. So we can't just keep thinking, oh, we'll fix it tomorrow. We can't keep believing in endless progress, that shibboleth of Western liberal universalism that we just move ever forward and we continue to grow and we we can't keep believing in that because it will destroy us. Our planet is finite just like our lives are finite and we're discovering that. Well, I was speaking about the annexation of the Sudetenland, sorry, the Sudetenland when yeah. Hitler just, I'm just going to take this little bit of Czechoslovakia with my father's country. Yeah. Oh, look, an even more distilled point, the assassination of when Princip shot um, Franz Ferdinand in 1914. Yes. That's like, that's a moment that you can yes. go, ah, that's the very start of World War One. This day, this moment when he was inside for a coffee, it all went horribly wrong and he happened to see mm. the car drive by, ran out, yeah. boom, and that's the catalyst. The situation we're in right now, as you mentioned, the neoliberalism dream showing up to be not what it was promised, the colossal rise of China, the decline of Western influence, but people still believing the fantasy. If you had to pick a moment where this all kind of started, is there a, a moment where we can look back and go, uh-huh, it all comes back to that? It's it's hard to say that there is a moment, but there is certainly a birth of ideas that give rise to all of these things that we've seen. And, and it is the Enlightenment, and it is that sort of explosion of, of science and philosophy in the 17th and 18th centuries that when philosophers tried to answer Newton, and, you know, Newton had given us these absolutely unimpeachable laws of the universe, and philosophers had to answer that. They had to say, if now that Newton has told us what the laws of the universe are and that we can distill these things down to this essence, what is it to be human? What is it to be alive? And out of that came this flowering of, of ideas and France and England and Scotland and the Netherlands and Germany and, and this tension between universalism, a, a sort of global humanity, as Immanuel Kant would say, a perpetual peace that comes from the cosmopolitanism of our world and the recognition of each other in each other versus a, a blood and soil belonging, bordered, tribal, 
you know, and that that sort of tension that arose out of that explosion of 17th and 18th century philosophy gives us everything of our age. And I think what we've seen since then is this contest of ideas, Stalinism, Nazism, you know, Marxism, Maoism, uh, liberalism, democracy, all of them trying to say that we have the best method of being able to manage society, to manage the crisis as you identified. And I think from there, we can see that how the, the weights on the scales at various times of history are piled so high that inevitably it bends, inevitably it breaks. We saw that in 1913, 1914, the lead up to World War I, and what did World War I created? It created the, the seeds for World War II that Hitler and could seize upon with that sense of resentment and, and vengeance against a Europe that had done them wrong and what it was for the German people to exist in the world. And now, of course, we're seeing it potentially again with China, the hundred years of humiliation. We will not be dominated by the West again. This is what you did to us. You laid us low. You took our lands. You dominated us. You massacred us. Um, the Japanese invasion, the opium wars. And now we're at that hinge point of history again. So I think what we see, Osher, is that in the birth of the modern world, with all of its belief in liberty and freedom, it also came with the downside, the dark side of that, which is what we do with that liberty and freedom and what we inflict on each other in the name of that liberty and freedom. And inevitably, that will reach a crisis point. And sadly, often the clearinghouse for those tensions is catastrophic conflict. You mentioned liberty and freedom, and it's difficult to understand that this bounty, this endless abundance, this healthcare system that we have, this country that we live in of Australia, this incredibly safe, unbelievably mm. stable, yes, we have problems, but good Lord, they're nowhere near yeah. anywhere else in the world. It exists every day at the expense of another, and internally, we all kind of know. Yeah. We make our accommodations, don't we? Yeah. We make our accommodations with that and we call it peace, we call it liberty, we call it freedom. What it is is an accommodation. Yes, we will sit here and we will have this conversation and we live in this world of abundance and we know that millions of people every year, far more than will die of COVID this year, millions of people will die of hunger. We know that we have rushed to a vaccine to deal with COVID, but we've never bothered to rush to a vaccine for malaria which is killing people every year because they're not white people, that I can sit here and I, and I feel this incredibly, you know, every day. I'm a privileged person. I've had an extraordinary life, and yet I come from a people and people in my own family who suffer every day because I am part of, I've made my accommodations with the oppressive system of white Australia. And yes, I speak back to it. And yes, I try to raise a voice for those who are voiceless and powerless. But I also know that I'm part of it. I'm part of that system. You know, I walk past cousins of mine in the street begging for money, my own blood begging for money. And I think, what, what are you doing, Stan? Who are you? What? It's obscene. And I know it's obscene. But this is the contradiction of our world. This is the messiness of our world. The best we can do, Osher, is to try to stay fixed on what justice is and what is right. And what is right is always right. And what is wrong is always wrong. It is wrong 
that Aboriginal people suffer here and there is no way around it. It was wrong to take this land of Aboriginal people, even though we've created this extraordinary country here anyway. And that contradiction is what Hegel talked about. It's the contradiction of our world that puts us on the highway of despair, as he said, but also can ultimately perhaps lead us to a greater sense of liberation. I haven't eaten, to, to be all self-righteous for a second, I haven't eaten, eaten meat for nearly 20 years. That's my personal choice. What mm. anybody else puts into their own mouth is completely up to them. Mm. But that's just my personal choice. But I found early on when I told people I didn't eat meat, the reaction that I got, which was often vociferous and almost aggressive, <clears throat> it struck me as an inner shame and an externalised anger because deep down they knew that, yeah, a cow is a sentient being. A cow feels yeah. emotion. A cow yeah. is a smart animal. And I know that it's difficult for me to deal with destroying, killing that animal, chopping it up so I can eat it. And that anger kind of came out. The shame was it kind of externalised as anger. In a similar way, depending on who you talk to, there's an anger that comes out when it turns to justice and equity for Indigenous Australians. Yeah. Do you feel that anger is, is masking a shame that we kind of all know is there? Yeah, we know where Australia's illegitimate, and it has to be illegitimate while ever the rights of First Nations people go unaddressed. I mean, where the wrongs of the past are not addressed, well, we don't speak about those things. And too often, when we do come to talk about those things, it's always loaded up with, what do white people want out of this? You know, often truth will go hand in hand with reconciliation and healing. And I'm like, hang on. Truth is just truth. And if it's a hard truth and if it makes you uncomfortable and if it makes you ashamed or guilty, live in that guilt and shame. Accept that. We are not rushing to healing and reconciliation. We have stuff to work through. So everything's, everything's contingent. Everything is conditional. Yes, we can deal with Aboriginal things, but as long as it's the right thing for us. I, I was in a conversation recently on Q&A and a very well-meaning, incredibly empathetic and supportive fellow panellists said, you know, we should have a treaty with Aboriginal people because it would be good for all of us. And I said, with respect, I really appreciate that sentiment, but a treaty for Aboriginal people is not dependent on making you feel good. There should be nothing in this for white people. There doesn't have to be. And it's the same thing with you You're talking about your, your choice to not eat meat and someone sort of feeling that you're making a judgment on them. It's the same thing with us. It's like our truth is somehow seen as a judgment on them. Well, you know what? Maybe it is. And I eat meat, Osher, and maybe maybe there should be a judgment on me because that's my own cross to bear. I've got to look at that. I've got to, you know, I can put a steak in my mouth and say, wow, that tastes fantastic and not give it a second thought in the same way that a white person can live in Australia and go to the beach and have a barbecue and, you know, go watch their kids sport and kiss their kids to sleep each night and, and live a really good and virtuous life and not give Aboriginal people a second thought. Well, we should. And it is a reflection on us when we do not give those things another thought. But everything is contingent and conditional, and we look for ways to make ourselves feel more comfortable with what the things that we know are absolutely unacceptable. My great fear is, you know, we can deal with that at the level of um, whether you choose to eat meat or, or those sorts of things. What happens when it is we are coming for you? We are coming for your kids. What happens when there's the knock at the door, as there was in Nazi Germany, and someone says, do you have Jewish people in the attic? You know, tell me the truth or I will kill your kids. 
we can ignore these things and put these things off, but eventually the cost becomes so high. We're talking about things that we think can't happen again in history, but it's not, they will happen. You know, history, this is a great saying I love, history never repeats, but it often rhymes. You spoke earlier about the 100 years of humiliation of China and um, it's really interesting to observe this country that uses at the same time the humiliation of the British and the humiliation of the Japanese, the colonialism, the invasion, the exploitation. In one hand, they hold that and in the other hand, they hold this where it's super, super powerful, like they play both victim and victor. What position does that put you in strategically as a country when it comes to making a move? Uh, You know, it's part of the whole idea of identity, I think. Identity, particularly when it is sort of strained through the crimes of history, you know, when your identity is forged in that sense of historical grievance and enmity and resentment. It is both an empowering thing and it is also something that reveals very clearly your own vulnerability and your victimhood. We see this everywhere. I heard people in ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban say exactly the same thing. On the one hand, look how powerful we are. Look what we can do. On the other hand, look what you've done to us, you you know, Westerners. You came in, you carved up our countries, you exploited our people. We're victims of the West. You hear it with the white supremacist movement. You know, we are victims. You will not replace us. You're destroying our culture hand in hand with white power. We're supreme. I mean, how can these two things exist? It's the same thing in China. We are powerful. We are China. We are back. We are the middle kingdom. We are the eternal empire. The emperor is the sun god. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world. Whoops, by the way, all you Westerners are out to get us and we've been victims of the West and you humiliated us. That's the engine of identity, that conflict between historical grievance and a return to some glorious age, some lost glory, some great moment that defined you, your greatness that you believe in and yet the humiliation that you suffered. We see this all the time when it comes to the weaponization and politicization of political identity. What do we, in our tiny little country of Australia, smaller than a city in China, What do we in Australia, what do we just not quite grasp about China? I think the fundamental thing that we don't get is we do not get how deeply history matters. And that really comes to, I think, the fundamental message of my book is that I went out into the world as an Aboriginal man, looking at the world through my eyes and the history of colonisation and oppression and destruction that came with that. And wherever I encountered that elsewhere, I... I saw myself, I recognised something of myself. In the West, we believe that we can vanquish history. History does not matter. You can cast off history like you cast off your clothes, like you cast off your country. You know, you can just up and move and leave Britain or Germany or, you know, wherever you may be and move to Australia and get a citizenship and become an Australian. I mean, it's that easy. And we just believe that there is this endless sort of progress and come back to someone like Albert Camus, he talked about, you know, in the West that we have we have sacrificed God for history because we want to know how it ends. We think that history is something we can bend to our will. And what we don't understand about China, we don't understand about other parts of the world, is that history is not something that you move on from. It is deeply embedded in you. And that sense in China that they were the, cent- the middle kingdom, they were the centre of the universe, 
they were usurped after the Opium Wars, the fall of the Qing Empire, that dark night of the Chinese soul when they grappled with that idea of who we are now. What does it mean to be Chinese? And then when Mao stands you know, in Tiananmen Square in 1949 and declares victory in the communist revolution, and what does he say? He says the Chinese people have stood up. This is not about the Communist Party. It is the Chinese people have stood up. We are back. And I don't think we get that. I don't think we get that in Australia. I don't think, and that influences the way we speak to them, our statecraft. You know, when Scott Morrison talked about an inquiry into COVID without going and speaking to the Chinese first or including them to Chinese ears, that's going to sound like big white Western country telling us again what to do, telling us we are wrong. I don't think we understand what their ears hear. I don't think we understand the weight of that history. And if we don't, we are going to misunderstand each other. doesn't mean there are not lines in the sand. It doesn't mean that what they are doing to the Uyghurs is reprehensible. It does not mean that the lack of freedom, you cannot speak your mind, the crushing of dissent, the crushing of democracy in Hong Kong, that these things are in any way acceptable. We need to speak up about those things. We need to be able to speak to China, but we need to know that it comes with a deep history. And when we speak to them, we have to be cognizant of what they are hearing, because otherwise there will be endless misunderstanding and that equally can lead to conflict. When Scott Morrison says things like this, it boggles my mind that in Australia we have a three-year election cycle, like who can get anything done? Yeah. Our three-year election cycle, it's like you talk about the end of history and that like we live our lives in these three-year chunks, you know, these terms of office. China really run on a different timescale, don't they? They've got plans that stretch out decades, hundreds of years. then the Chinese Communist Party can set in stone what's going to happen, and it will happen. I mean, when I was there, I saw over a 10-year period a country that was a rural country become an urban country, entirely new cities built, fast-speed rail connecting all of the country, while India, which in the 1990s started out at pretty much a similar place economically, does not even have flushing toilets for all its population. China has fast-speed rail. We don't have it because the Chinese Communist Party can say, we're going to get this done. In five years, we will achieve this. There's no opposition. There's no critical free press. There's no protest that's going to stop it. They're just going to get it done. We're going to come in. We're going to flood these villages and we're going to build the, the Three Gorges Dam. We're going to do it. And that's going to power our country. We're going to set economic benchmarks and we're going to achieve them. We're going to move our population from the rural centres to the urban centres and it's going to transform our economy and transform our society and we're just going to do it. There is something to that. I just think, though, I wonder ultimately whether you can rapidly develop a country, but can you become a great country if you don't ultimately trust your people? And that's where they're at right now. Can they deliver on all they have built by oppressing and crushing the freedom of their own people. You got a little taste of it. You write about it in the book. You got a little taste of visibly noticing a difference of working there, kind of, I'm just a journalist working around, to I'm being watched and monitored every second of my day. Yeah. What's it like? It changed a lot. You know, I was uh, four years in Hong Kong, seven years in Beijing, two different stints. I had a stint in the Middle East in the middle. And I, I the, between the two stints in Beijing, something really dramatic had changed. It had become a much more assertive or aggressive country. The crackdown on freedom was much more obvious. People really felt this sense of 
China's return tinged with that vengeance against the West. And working for CNN, I had a big brand on my back, you know. I might have just been running around screaming American at the top of my voice because that's what we were, the American brand. We were the news version of Coca-Cola. And so, of course, we were right in, the, in their sights. And my family were harassed. Uh, my children were questioned. I was constantly followed. My wife was constantly followed. If friends came to visit, there'd be photographs taken of us. Um, our phones were bugged. Our house was there was a car that sat outside pretty much 24-7 and monitored who came and went and where we went and what we were doing. Trying to get stories done with CNN was difficult because people would be warned off that we were planning to interview or we'd be detained, taken to a police cell, questioned, our tapes taken off us on several occasions, roughed up, slapped around, kicked and punched. And, you know, this was in a day's work for us. And living with that level of surveillance with that, that heavy hand of the state, you know, it really wakens you, wakes you up to this idea of what an authoritarian regime is. And it, it, again, it says to me, my God, what we have in the West, in Australia, is so precious. The ability for you and I to have this conversation, criticising the West, criticising China, praising aspects of China, praising aspects of the West, being open and frank with each other. And well, I don't fear that someone's going to come and knock on the door here and drag me out. In China, I would. And so that is so precious to us that we need to protect and defend it. And I think if there is a criticism in my book of the West is that we are not doing a good job of that. We're throwing that away. We're throwing that away with our own tribalism, our own authoritarianism, our demagogues that we elect, our, our lack of empathy and care and kindness, our failure to deal with the legacy of racism, sexism and deep inequalities. We will kill ourselves and the very freedoms that we should be absolutely cherishing. And as someone who knows what it's like on the other side, I know that, you know, if we don't cherish those things, if we don't take care of those things, we will lose them. And that's what life looks like when you lose your freedom. You are not free to have these types of conversations. How can we in this large land, but very sparsely populated comparatively, how can we as a country, how can we as humans, I guess, prepare ourselves for the next 5, 10, 20 years of China? Like what do we in Australia, what can I do? What can the people listening do? to think about things differently? Australia has a, a really interesting position. I mean, we've, um, up until recently, we've been able to walk both sides of the fence. We have have our closest strategic relationship with the United States and we've enjoyed a very deep trade relationship with China. And beyond that, a, a, a friendship and exchange of peoples and exchange of students and businesses doing business with each other and tourism, all of those things that stop you shooting each other, right? Stop you killing each other. And we've enjoyed that, that ability as a, as a middle power to be able to navigate those very tricky waters, be able to sort of be an intermediary, to smooth things over, to be able to, um, to speak honestly to China about the things we disagree with without imperiling the relationship. I think all of those things were true. I don't think they're true anymore. I think probably in the last few years, we've become much more in lockstep with a a more aggressive, belligerent attitude from the United States, um, which seeing China much more clearly as a competitor, if not an outright threat, and that also met by China's belligerence and aggression that sees the US as a competitor, if not an outright threat, 
And we're now being dragged along in that vortex. You know, we are part of this return to great power rivalry and being a small country, we're not in the position to influence the outcome of that. We're going to be hostage, I think, to fate. We're going to be hostage to history in a, in a lot of respects. I don't know that we can influence things beyond that. I think that this big power rivalry between US and China is going to resolve itself one way or another, and it's not going to be easy and it could be terribly bloody. And, and in a sense, we've, we've lost control of that. We will go where history leads us right now. And it's a scary situation. I would hope that there could be some return to sort of diplomacy, even in the, when we talk about a new Cold War, I mean, the Cold War stopped the hot war, right? I mean, at least Russia and the US did not blow each other to bits. Um, there was no, you know, there was mutually assured destruction. They weren't going to bomb each other with nuclear weapons. Even that, you know, is better than just all-out conflict. But all of these things are on the table right now. And if we can't write that relationship, if we can't speak to each other and trade with each other, work with each other, criticise each other, then inevitably that's going to lead to something worse. You mentioned earlier you've seen, you've been on the ground, you've you've smelt it, you've washed it off your skin, the absolute butchery of conflict when humans really get beyond diplomacy or being able to talk to each other. And I'm also sure in those moments you bore witness to humanity, to compassion. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just beautiful things, you know. I mean, I remember being in Pakistan during um, uh, Ramadan, uh, Ramazan as they call it there, and um, it was... Uh, after the earthquake, which killed 250,000 people, it was just catastrophic. And we were working with Islamic relief agencies and, um, you know, terrible things, and dragging dead bodies out of buildings and just horrible things. And these doctors doing their best every day to sort of treat people and aid agencies doing their best to deliver food relief to people and not being able to drink or eat because it was Ramadan. They had to fast throughout the day. And then I remember when it came to iftar, that breaking of the fast at dusk, and sitting there with these people who have absolutely given their all, everything that they have, and they turned to me and my crew and offered us the food first. We were their guests. And I'm like, I'm not worthy of this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just here filming. I'm not, I'm not saving anyone's life. I'm not bringing food to anybody. But they offered us the food first and they would not think of taking it until we had eaten first. That's extraordinary. I remember seeing a, a, a father once in Pakistan who had lost everything. His, his house, his son had been killed. Another son was badly injured. He carried his son, the injured son, 20 miles down the side of a, of a mountain. I saw them in a tent in a distant field. I went across to talk to these people in this tent and the mother was there and she was cooking over an open fire. All she had gathered from the relief agencies. There's a son inside there with a broken leg and internal injuries. The other son and the father, they've lost everything. And she's offering us food with them. The next morning, Osho, I see this man in the town square at dawn. All the men would come down there and they'd stand there and they'd assemble in the town square and the relief agencies would come by and they would choose men to come and work for them for the day and they'd be paid for their work. And this man was there. This man who had lost his home, his eldest son, carried his other son down a mountainside who all he had left was a tent and some meager rations and he was standing there in that town square looking for work to look after his family. My God, you know, 
the human spirit is just a phenomenal thing and it's greater than any tyrant. You mentioned at the very start of this conversation that hope was a thing to be wary of. Stan, I've got to believe that that qualities, those qualities you've just spoken of, we're born with them. They exist mm. in all of us. And when the chips are really, really down, we either choose, I'll pick up an AK-47 and go where the man tells me, or I'll yeah. do that. And I'd, I'd like to think that we haven't destroyed ourselves yet because that power to care for each other is a little stronger. It's a hard one for me because I think I want to believe that too. And I think that's potentially that's right. But go, my God, I see how easily and quickly we can yeah. bend to tyranny. And I've yeah. often, I've struggled with this idea. Are we just hardwired for hatred and suspicion of the other? We put up these razor wires and we put up borders and we arm ourselves to defend against other people. Um, you know, when offered a choice between freedom and security, how often, how easily we take security and we abandon freedom, even in allowing the worst of atrocities. You know, Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, he said that the German people, and, you know, this was, again, influenced by the sort of philosophical ideas about what it is to be German, blood and soil, tribally German. And he said the German people would rather be dominated by the strong leader than to dominate the weak leader. And he said they would rather the ideology without rival than the promise of liberal freedom the ideology without rival rather than the promise of liberal freedom. And I've seen that so often. And I think that tension between, as Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature, the man who will get up and look for work when his family has nothing, the people who will offer me the first food at the breaking of the fast, the people who, who will stand in front of the bullet for other people, the people who will endure, are they the aberration? Or, or is that in all of us? I think that's the... That's the thing I constantly wrestle with. When you speak of that Hitler quote, that is for people who are still denying death, mate, I feel. Yeah. That's for people yeah. who are still denying death and still want someone to save them from the uncomfortable feeling of I'm going to die. Yes. We choose security because security is, oh, you know, if all the teachers have guns, I don't have to worry about it. It's like, no, I might, you know. Personally, in my heart, I feel that the acceptance of death and the acceptance of the finite nature of, of life frees you from a lot of that frees you from searching for strong men, but that's just me. I'll and you know how powerful that strong man can be, Osha? My God, you know how the, the strong man can be so intimidating and convincing. And I, I watched a um, documentary. I was up early one morning and there was this documentary on about Goering and the Nuremberg trials and the way that he, you know, there were American soldiers there wanting his autograph. <laughs> he would walk into that, courtroom with just this self-belief and lecturing other people saying, of course, we're going to die. Of course, these people are going to kill us. Meet your death in a way that would make you proud to be German. And, and people bowing to that, you know, it's, um, yeah. it is the fear of death that we all have and the fearlessness that tyrants sometimes will have that so intimidate us and cower us. We'll just take a moment away from Stan Grant because I would like to ask you that if this podcast brings you value, if this is something you listen to often and you know you, you look forward to and you get value out of and you go, oh, there you go, when you listen to it, um, I'd love you to pay me back, not with cash, 
but by sharing this podcast with a text message or a DM or telling someone about this show or emailing someone about this show or screenshotting and putting it up on your feed or rating or reviewing or following or subscribing wherever you can to this show, that is the thing that you can do for me and that will repay me more than you can imagine for making this show and repay me for the value that you get out of it. So thanks heaps. I really appreciate that you're here. We'll be back to talk with Stan Grant in just a second. Thanks for being a part of this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll scroll through the news for long enough. You'll, it'll, it's grim. What steps can we take as a people to cope with the world at this point in history? Well, you know what you said at the start, that here you were with your son at the rock pool? That's valid. That is making a difference. That is the joy of being a human being. And sometimes it's just that. Sometimes we can't. We can't change these things that are beyond our control. But if one by one we seize on those things, we value those things, those things that are precious to us, if enough people do that, then there's nothing left for the tyrants, right? Because these tyrants, they, they feed on fear. They want to crush love. They want to feed on our fear of death, our anxiety. But if they can't take that from you, what's left for them? There's this wonderful story I think I quoted in the book of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he writes in the Gulag Archipelago of being sent to the Gulag because the Soviets want to crush him, they want to break his soul, and they put him into solitary confinement, and he's finally let out, and he's taken to a cell, and he's dumped in this cell, and there are three bedraggled figures in there, and they all look up at him with these unshaven faces and gaunt and half-starved, and the first thing they say to him is, are you from freedom? You know, no one can take that from you. And I think that's what we have to cling to. What is right, and we know what's right, and we know what's wrong, and we know what it is to be free, and we know what it is to want freedom for others, and it is, we know what it is to make the ethical choices, and we know what it is to play music with someone or to read poetry or to watch a beautiful sunset or to play with your son in the rock pool, and that is more powerful than the tyrants. That's how you beat them. It's fascinating when you take away the fuel for the fire. 
Yeah. You take away the, the the fear that a screenshotted meme can strike through your soul. And I've felt it. You know, I've read some stuff when I'm scared and I'm like, oh my God, you know. Yes. Speaking of which, as someone who spent most of his career in news organisations, now that algorithms are taking over what we see as reality, and it kind of takes us a bit back to Hegel, to be honest, how do you see how humans are perceiving reality when our reality is being oh. controlled by algorithms, Stan? Oh, my God, you're so right. And what is truth and what is real and, you know, what we allow into our lives and the media's role in that. And this dissonance, you know, on the one hand, we see this righteous movement right now of women who are saying, we're not going to cop patriarchy and your violence and your dominance and we're going to speak back to this. And, I, and I'm saying, yep, I'm right there you know, with you. At the same time, that appalling Married at First Sight is the most popular program in Australian television. And I just go, I don't get this. Why do we allow this? And, and the media, you know, I'm part of this thing. And I just know that 24-7 news is not good for your health. It's not. It's just this endless every hour has to be worse. Every hour has to be more dire. Every crisis has to be worse. It's increased tribalism. It's pitted one person against another. It's created the anxiety that gave us Donald Trump. It gave us Donald Trump. He fed on, on this 24-7 endless cycle of hatred and bile and crisis. And we participate in this. And, you know, this is what journalism ends up being about. And it stops being about those bigger questions and those bigger truths. And it becomes about just what someone is saying at any given time or what crisis is in the headlines now or what's going to be worse this hour compared to last hour. There is no time to reflect. There is no time to see your way through those things, to hold on to bigger ideas and bigger truths. And, and you're right, then you, you reduce the world to an algorithm where you know someone can decide based on some instant data sampling what we read, what we see, what we buy, what we hear. And ultimately that becomes, as Camus would say, the absurdity that creates your very existence. But it's not real. And I, oh, no. you know, depending on what you search for, even you and me, what you search for, what you look for on your internet browser versus what I look for and search for on my internet browser, what I speak in front of my phone will alter what I see and beyond my home where I live yes. and beyond the inside of my car and my workplace, I'm relying on these devices to show me what the rest of the world looks like. <laughs> we all have different versions of what the rest of the world looks like. You know, it's crazy, right? I mean, I, I love music and I go on and I, I'll put on my, you know, in the car, whatever my streaming service of choice is and up will come these cu curated song lists. And I'm going, okay, so because I listen to David Bowie now – out comes, you know, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and we're through into The Clash and The Pistols and that, okay, but what about all this? Other? I might like Beethoven too, thank you very much. Um, and, you know, music, bang, this is who you are. We've decided, Stan Grant, this is who you are, this is what you like. Oh, you looked up that brand of shoes one day. Well, guess what? Now you're going to get bombarded with these ads for these, these shoes. Um, and then, you know, that's at a harmless, in a way, level of sort of daily consumption. But what about truth? Ah, Osha, you like this. You must believe this. We're putting you in this box. Well, you know, what about the other side of that? What about other ideas I might want to re read about and experience and debate with? 
And we end up just being corralled into this ever-narrowing existence, speaking to only people who think like us, buying the same things, listening to the same music, and we stop that beautiful human connection that lifts us out of our different identity boxes into something bigger. Well, it saves us the confrontation of having to accept that what we think might not be right or what we like might might not be what everyone likes because the more we listen to these algorithms, the more that we get put into these communities of recommended Facebook groups, whatever, we never have to deal with the uncomfortableness of dissent to our opinion. But that's not life. That's not humanity. Humanity is, is to have ideas that this person, you know, thinks 8 plus 10 equals 18. That person thinks 8 plus 10 equals 16. Somewhere yeah. in history, eventually they'll find 17. Yeah. <laughs> Neither's right, but they can both live with 17. That's life. Yeah. That's humanity. Yeah. But we're not being presented with that. As a newsman, as a career-long newsman, what's your advice for people when it comes to accessing news and actually finding out what's going on in the world? I've become increasingly less of a consumer of news I don't remember the last time I watched a, a nightly news bulletin because, frankly, I, you know, I don't want someone sitting here making a decision about what I'm going to watch. My advice to people is to be as curious and to read and listen to as many different things as you possibly can. And I go out of my way to engage with ideas that, may be absolutely antithetical to my own belief system. Things I know are going to disturb me and challenge me, and sometimes it strengthens my own point of view, and sometimes I have to reflect that maybe I hadn't thought things through. Maybe I was wrong. And to have the humility to know you're wrong. But, you know, read widely. If you're going to watch the news, watch different news broadcasts, listen to different radio broadcasts, listen to different podcasts, You've got to challenge yourself all the time. That's been one of the great sort of privileges of my life has been to live a life of the mind where I can engage with ideas and challenge myself and read things that are challenging and don't just fall back into the safety and security of identity where someone can define you and what you are interested in and what you believe and what you should think and what you should read and what you should watch and what you should listen to and who you should hang out with and who you should love and where you should live and, you know, all of those things. You've got to embrace things and challenge yourself and be vulnerable and humble enough to know that you don't have all the answers and that you may change your mind, and that's a good thing. It seems that we have created a system of media where changing your mind as a leader, oh, as anyone, you're not, not allowed to change your mind. What I thought when I was 18 or what I thought when I was yeah. 25 has to be the thing I think until I'm dead. That's not true for anybody. But we personally, we find it very difficult to change our minds. And I always tell people, you're never going to convince someone, you know, never win an internet argument. People will never change their minds in public ever, yeah. ever. They'll yeah. lose too much face to take an Eastern kind of philosophy. Losing face is the most horrible thing. We just can't allow our leaders to change their minds. And I don't know if that is a healthy thing for us as a community to have. We punish our leaders so much for changing their minds. Yeah. Well, you know, they're a flip-flopper. They don't have the strength of their own beliefs. Um, Well, I tell you, you know, Hitler had the strength of his own beliefs. That's not always a good thing. (laughs) The ability to change your mind, I think it was... I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith who said, you know, when the facts change, I, I change my mind. I mean, when I read something, when I'm challenged by something, I'll reflect on it. And 
If that means that I'm going to change my position on something, I embrace that. That is good. I really don't like certainty. I don't trust it. I don't like where it leads. I don't like how it can so easily lead to fascism. And I don't like identity for that same reason. You know, I don't like identity. I don't like the word. I don't like what it represents. I don't like the age that it has created. I don't like the certainties associated with identity. I don't like the battles of identity because I think we are far more complex and contradictory and far less certain than our identities allow. And I think that is such a scourge of our age, this identity that binds us and does not allow us to see ourselves in each other or look beyond our differences or disagreements. You know, we don't have to reach a consensus. We don't have to agree, but we surely have to recognise the contradictions that sit within us and extend that's those same contradictions to others. You've spoken a bit in this conversation about your connection to your country. I have been incredibly privileged and uh, humbled to be accepted and welcomed onto Wiradjuri country by um, yeah. by Joe Williams. My cousin, Joe. He calls you Uncle Stan. Yeah. He took me to a very special place and he invited me to be a part of a ceremony and it was incredible, Stan. I, yes. As a white immigrant, uh, European immigrant, I understood more than I, and I thought I already had a pretty good idea, but I understood connection to country and culture that stretches beyond a human lifetime so powerfully. Your father pretty much yeah. saved the Wiradjuri language from extinction, from vanishing, and uh, and with that, by saving the language, rescued a connection to culture and country that spreads beyond human lifetime, spreads beyond people that you remember being alive. Oh, my great-granddad, I remember him when I was little. No, 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 this, this goes back hundreds, thousands, of, yeah. thousands and thousands of years. As we move forward into the next phase of humanity, and it's grim to think about, but, you know, as we said, crisis often brings great things to our lives. As we move forward to this next phase of humanity, one where coastlines shift, ones where mm-hmm. populations migrate because it's too hot, we can't grow food, one where physical connections to land and place are broken, why is it important to maintain a cultural connection? Can it be it deep in your case or shallow like in my case? It's, it's a really interesting question, Osha, because we know that tradition can also be oppressive. We know that, right? And there are some traditions that are incredibly oppressive, particularly oppressive to women, for instance. Tradition is to be challenged. Tradition is to be reformed, shaken up. We should be open to new ideas. But I think there are also Without tradition, you know, it's why I don't mock people's faiths or these people who sort of ridicule people of faith because they see it as sort of superstitious nonsense or whatever. It is meaningful. It gives them a sense of wonder in the world. And I would never want to take that from someone. We need to be connected because it centres us, it grounds us. You know, as someone who is a Wiradjuri Gummeroy person who's deeply connected to my culture and my country. I've also lived in Beijing and Islamabad and Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Hong Kong and London. I've visited the great cities of the world and I've walked down the streets of New York seeing through the eyes of a Rajri Gumroy person in the world. And I think it is that connection of our traditions and our faiths and our beliefs and our connections in a world where we can share those things. And what you described 
as you and Joe coming together on, on country to be invited into something, to be welcomed into something, truly welcomed, is a powerful statement against the tyranny of identity. Because, Osha, you, you cease to be, you know, Osha Ginsburg there. Joe, in his own way, ceases to be Joe Williams. And you become two people connecting to something so deep and so fundamental, so much a part of the firmament, that it's bigger than both of you and bigger than our moment. And, and I think that that tension that exists in our world and has done for the past, you know, however long, between the dream of a universalism, of a humanity that we all share, vis-a-vis the connection to place, blood and soil. When we get that wrong, you end up in a terrible place. You end up in an alienated, globalised world where nothing and no one matters and all we have is the view from nowhere. Or you end up in a deeply dark, tribal place where you can send people to the gulag and the gas chamber because they are not who you are. And it's that battle between those things, I think, that that goes to the heart of our world and how we share this planet with all its finite resources and its limited space and all of its natural beauty and disaster, how we share that together. I think it is that tension between our universalizing humanity and our need for belonging. That friction, that tension is where we all live. You started this chat saying that you're reluctant to use the word hope or to believe in hope, but I, I, I think what you really hit the nail on the head here, and I'm not, I'm not going to lie, like you're not going to read a Stan Grant book and then and skip through the streets going everything's awesome. You're just going to get your, <laughs> you're getting your face held up to light, and that's an yeah. important thing. I think it's important that we recognise that and be okay with the discomfort of like the reality of our existence is also pain. It's not always universal healthcare and rising property yeah. prices, you know, depending on what side of the mortgage you're on. But Stan, from me, what you talked about earlier of if we have that connection, you just touched on it again then, if we have that connection with each other, if we share a personal connection with each other, we find each other connecting, we take away the power from the strong man. We take away the yeah. power from the the lure to be pulled into this identity. And that's something that's all within every one of us, which are in our control. I can't decide what Xi Jinping's 100-year plan is. I can't do anything to influence China, but I can talk to a stranger on the street and I can change my absolute reality of my world by speaking with people and connecting with human beings around me. And I think it's, it's trying to hold on to what that truth is, Asha, too, is because identity can be presented as so virtuous. And sometimes it is, you know, that thing that binds us together. Black Lives Matter is a virtuous movement. But even within that, I recognise that it can carry its own tyranny, that within that, inevitably, you end up in a situation where someone says, okay, so what is blackness? And who defines who black is? And if you disagree with this, are you out of the club? Are you no longer belonging here? despotism can hide within even the most apparently liberating movements. And we should always be alert and aware of that. And identity can appear to be and can often be in itself an incredibly virtuous thing. And even a, you know, an angry white Appalachian out of work, former factory worker voting for Donald Trump would say this is virtuous. This man's going to speak for me because Washington is my enemy and I want to drain the swamp. 
And yet we know how easily that person's pain can be co-opted into a horrible white supremacy. So we must be vigilant all the time about where tyranny lurks and hides and its ability to even infest the most virtuous movements. Again, to come back to Camus, um, who's endlessly quotable, but, you know, he said, every cry for justice can be an invitation to hate. Even in those moments of justice, you may be dividing yourselves from other people and breeding a hatred. I mean, Hitler spoke to the German people about what he saw was the, the injustice of the Treaty of Versailles, the injustice of carving up German territory and the Germans having to pay down the war debt. And then he said, look at these other people taking stuff away from us. Now, who are we as Germans? What is the virtuous German identity? And look where it leads you, you know? And Xi Jinping talks about the 100 years of humiliation. And yes, that's true. And binds the Han ethnic majority of China to this sense of righteousness and Chinese power and the return to great power and then persecutes the weaker people. We must always be vigilant and look at identity movements, even when they appear to be dressed in the sort of cloak of justice, that they can also be carrying deep inside their own tyranny. Stan, I'm so happy to hear earlier in the conversation you talked about the routine that you keep, the discipline you have to make sure that you uh, maintain not only physical health but mental health. And I'm happy to hear that, Stan, because the world's a better place with you in it, mate. Well, uh, we try to do our bit, Osher, and it's, it's a better place for you too, mate, because for you, you're in it. And, you know, these conversations, and that beautiful story you told about going to the rock pool with your son, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's a better place because you're in it. It's a better place for these conversations, and this is where it starts. You're a good man, Stan Grant. I could do a 15-part TV series with you, but, <laughs> you know, that's for another pitch. Uh <laughs> You're the best ever, mate. I can't thank you enough for taking time to do this. Oh, I know you had limited interviews. Thanks I'm really grateful. Yeah, thank you, brother. Mate, it's, again, the baby woke up in the middle of that and Audrey's like, is everything okay? I was like, can't hear the baby crying. I'm transfixed in Stan's poetry. <laughs> he speaks in poetry. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, brother. That was Stan Grant. You can find the book that we were discussing there, With the Falling of the Dusk. Uh, it's a sobering read, but it's important and ultimately is hopeful because, look, the world we're in right now, everything, every problem was imagined by people. We can just as easily imagine a different way to do it. And that's within our grasp today. Talking to My Country is another book that Stan's written that I thoroughly recommend, as is Australia Day. January 26 is only a few short days away. If you are a bit snowed under, you don't have time to read through Stan's book, Australia Day. He and I did have an entire conversation on this podcast about that very book. If you scroll on back, you can find that. Um, It's worth a listen at this time of year when you consider how you might be spending that particular day in January. Yeah, it's worth considering, okay? Thanks for listening. Thanks to Andy, who cut this episode, Rachel Barrett, my EP, a toe hider on the music, and you for listening. Um, I'll see you in a couple of days. Look after yourself. Wear some sunblock. Find some shade. Go for a walk. Notice five separate plants when you walk. Leave your phone at home. See what happens. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 